Welcome to The Baton, a John Williams musical journey. Join host Jeff Cummings as he takes you through the career of the illustrious film composer John Williams, starting with his debut in 1959 through more than 100 films in 60 years. This episode features the 2015 film The Force Awakens. And here's your host, Jeff Cummings. So we've arrived at the first of the three episodes on the baton, which will examine the music for the Star Wars sequels, which John Williams immediately said yes to writing the music for when it was announced these films would happen. But things got in the way that temporarily derailed his ability to provide us with his very anticipated score. And we're going to get to that in a moment. But right now, I would like to welcome back my co-host, Polyus Aedicus, who returns after we had so much fun talking about the score for Harry Potter and the Prisoner of Azkaban. It's good to have you here, Polyus. It's great to be back, Jeff. I wasn't alive during the era of the original Star Wars trilogy, and I was still a bit too young to participate in the popular craziness and hype of the prequels. So my chance to really be a Star Wars fan and to enjoy the global phenomenon together with everyone else didn't come until 2012, when Disney announced that they had acquired the rights to Star Wars and that they were planning to do a sequel trilogy. Everyone was excited about that. Everyone was hopeful about the future of the franchise. And I was no exception. And to be here to discuss the music for The Force Awakens is a great joy for me. So as I said earlier, John Williams encountered some hurdles when it came time to write the music for The Force Awakens, which picks up the Star Wars story 30 years after the events of Return of the Jedi with an almost completely new cast of characters. The hurdles weren't time or money or scheduling logistics, but rather a physical setback. In March 2015, when Williams was deep into writing music for The Force Awakens, news broke that he was not going to be able to write music for a Steven Spielberg film set to be released in October called Bridge of Spies. The press release from DreamWorks Pictures said Williams had to step away from working on that movie because of the time needed to fix, quote, a minor health issue now corrected, end quote. No matter what this health issue was, the news that Williams wasn't writing the music for Bridge of Spies was historic. This would be the only, the second time that Williams wasn't writing music for a Spielberg film, with The Color Purple being the first back in 1985. That time it was Quincy Jones's contract stipulations that kept Williams from that film, but there were no indications before spring 2015 that Williams, who was now 83 years old, was in the type of health to prevent his work on two films in one year. So in his place, Williams recommended that Thomas Newman write the music for Bridge of Spies, a choice that turned out to be beneficial for Newman as he scored an Oscar nomination for his work. As for The Force Awakens, Williams only needed to take some time off from writing to rest a bit. That worked in his favor as director J.J. Abrams was still making some edits that would affect Williams' ability to write proper music. But the health issue would carry into his conducting duties for The Force Awakens. Up to this point, John Williams had conducted every session on all but one of his film scores, and that was Harry Potter and the Chamber of Secrets. For The Force Awakens, he held the baton on eight of the 13 recording sessions, likely because he needed to reduce his physical exertion during the time those five recording sessions took place. And contrary to what has been mentioned in a few places on the internet, William Ross only conducted four sessions in August and September, much less than many John Williams fans had speculated. 
Also, Williams asked a young conductor named Gustavo Dudamel, the nude leader of the L.A. Philharmonic, to have a go at conducting the recordings of the main title and end credits music for one day on October 12th. This would kick off a new kind of relationship for Williams as sort of a mentor for the first time in his career. Dudamel, who would often say in his interviews after working on The Force Awakens, said Williams was a, quote, good friend and that he learned a lot under his wing. Yeah, I also noticed how fondly they talk of each other during the interviews. It was, in fact, through John Williams and through the score for The Force Awakens that I first learned about Gustavo Dudamel and his conducting work. He's really charismatic, and he has contributed greatly to making classical music more popular amongst the general public and schools. As for J.J. Abrams, he decided to return to the roots of the original Star Wars, staying true to the style and motion of the old films, rather than going off in an entirely new direction, which might have alienated the fans. He learned from George Lucas's mistakes in the prequels, and decided to use as little CGI as possible, using practical effects, prosthetics and miniature models, just as George Lucas did when he worked on the original trilogy. In addition to that, J.J. Amos wanted the film's lead cast to be mostly composed of new, unknown actors. Again, mirroring uh, what George Lucas did when he picked Mark Hamill, Carrie Fisher and Harrison Ford, all of whom were little known prior to their famous roles in Star Wars. So, while those famous actors did return to The Force Awakens to play the characters from the original trilogy, the film's lead cast were selected through open auditions in 2014. Eventually, Daisy Ridley and John Boyega, both of whom had only done a handful of projects, were chosen to play the characters of Frey the Scavenger and Finn the Stormtrooper. They were also joined by Oscar Isaac and Adam Driver, who were already known to the Hollywood scene. Oscar Isaac had his breakthrough with the comedy drama Inside Louis Davis in 2013 by the Coen brothers, and was getting a lot of buzz for his acting in Ex Machina earlier in 2015. You know, Oscar Isaac is one of my favorite actors of this generation. I seriously could watch him read the phone book and pay $10 to see it. I don't think a lot of people know that he went to the prestigious Juilliard School, just like one of his co-stars in The Force Awakens. Yes, Adam Driver had gone to Juilliard as well. And he had appeared in a big scene in Spielberg's Lincoln and had a breakthrough in the HBO series Girls by Lena Dunham. In general, I agree with the casting choices here. There's no way that The Force Awakens would have worked if those four roles were to be taken by some really big-name actors. A Star Wars film works best when it allows you to immerse yourself in the story, to get that desired feeling of escapism, and to know that you're in a galaxy far, far away, and to forget that you're watching a film. I think that's what makes this film and the sequel films as a whole pretty good. It's also worth noting that director J.J. Abrams moved the needle of Star Wars casting by putting more people of color in prominent roles. That's a big step forward from having Billy D. Williams, Samuel L. Jackson, and Jimmy Smits be the only people of color in the first six films. And I suppose you can count Ahmed Best as Jar Jar Binks in that too. So John Williams had a lot of time to work on this score, more than six months to be exact. Williams never got to see the complete film in one sitting, instead in getting the edits in 20 or 30 minute chunks and writing for what he saw and what he knew of the plot for the rest of the movie. 
He started that work just before Christmas 2014 and finished almost all of the music intended for the film in June 2015, just days before the orchestra was set to perform. And speaking of the orchestra, the sequel trilogy marked the first time the London Symphony Orchestra would not be performing Star Wars music. A couple of news reports indicated that Williams did not want to travel to London for what was going to be a very long recording period, about five months long. The health issue he experienced might have played into that, with Williams likely not allowed to get on an airplane that year as he recovered from whatever treatment or surgery he received. As you listen to the music here, we'll leave it up to you to feel if the musicians in Los Angeles are just as good as the London Symphony Orchestra. Almost three hours of music were recorded for the film, which is much longer than the film itself. J.J. Abrams holds John Williams in very high regard, which is why he wanted the maestro's input for every possible scene, whether or not it ended up in the final cut of the film. In general, there's really little silence in the film, and most of it features back-to-back musical cues. The only issue that I have with J.J. Abrams and the sound department is that, more often than not, the score is drowned by the sound effects and dialogue. Well, that's not a new issue for John Williams. He's had to constantly fight for his music to be heard over sound effects, especially in the prequel trilogy, but also in parts of the original trilogy as well. Sound effects are pretty much an obstacle for many composers these days, especially in action films. And I think that's why most of the music these days just feels like composers are writing sound effects instead of actual music. Yes, that's a problem that composers face nowadays. And while John Williams was given plenty of time to compose, as well as a dozen sessions with the best musicians in Los Angeles, the resulting score wasn't given that same breathing space in the film. It's only during the end credits and on the soundtrack album release that you can really experience all the music in its full sonority that it should have had during the film. And here on the baton as well. So I agree that the music in The Force Awakens doesn't get its full due in the film version. The first time I saw the film, my ears were so overwhelmed that I was trying to figure out some of the musical themes as the film went on, but that was quite difficult. A couple of them were very easy to hear, while one or two of them just needed an adjustment on the equalizer levels. To me, the score for The Force Awakens was an immediate hit. The quality of the music is out of this world, not a note is wasted, and every cue tells its own unique tale in its own unique way. Let's not keep people waiting any longer, and let's delve into those stories, and figure out how John Williams uses his talent to once again summon some of that Star Wars magic that we all know and love. Absolutely. And the best place to start is at the beginning, but before we do, we have to tell you, of course, that there are some spoilers coming for the three or four people who have not seen this movie yet. Now, with that out of the way, I want to say that I'm not too enthusiastic about the main title music as conducted by Gustavo Dudamel. It feels like a concert performance and not a performance for film. But this is immaterial once the movie really gets started. The music immediately turns very menacing and warlike. As we watch four transport ships full of stormtroopers leave a Star Destroyer above the planet of Jakku. Their descent to Jakku is accompanied by a beautiful descending motif played by the strings and the harp. This is when we are first introduced to two new characters. The droid BB-8, who races to warn his master Poe Dameron about the imminent attack.
As Poe receives a piece of the map, we are introduced to the first new theme of the film, the map theme, which is a very simple alternation of two chords that are a triton apart. A triton, as has been mentioned on this podcast before, is the devil's interval. In this case, the chords produce a very otherworldly, mystical tone. They are heard whenever a scene focuses on the map to Luke Skywalker, or on Luke's disappearance in general. The harmony used here is the same as in the Ark theme from Raiders of the Lost Ark, and it's also possibly inspired by Movement 7 from the Carnival of the Animals by Camille Saint-Saëns. John Williams scores the following attack on the village with a great action cue. The scene culminates in the powerful and sinister Kylo Ren's motif, introducing the main villain of the film.
Color and motif is harmonically similar to the Imperial March. And as we learn later in the film, there's a reason for that. Kylo is Darth Vader's grandson and wants to continue the legacy of the Empire. To illustrate the similarity in the themes, let's listen to an excerpt from the Imperial March. And now let's listen to the Kylo Ren motif. As you can hear, there are a lot of common notes between these two motifs. Yeah, I certainly think that was not an accident. Williams knew the connection between Kylo Ren and Darth Vader and obviously didn't want the connection to be made too easily musically since we don't know about the family connection for almost an hour. But you really helped to make that connection more clear, Polly, so thanks for that performance there. So Kylo Ren's theme was one of the musical themes that really stood out to me immediately. What is really interesting is its performance is mainly on the horns and not the brass. Vader's theme was almost exclusively performed on brass instruments, but perhaps Williams is saying that Ren is not as strong as Vader, so he doesn't get the really strong instruments. That's my impression as well, Jeff. Kylo Ren seems to be a mere shadow of his grandfather, and not a truly powerful force of evil yet. He also has a secondary theme which seems to be full of tension due to its repeating note, played with increasing strength each time. The theme is stated in its most terrifying form when Kylo first confronts Rey in the forest. You know, that's amazing that John Williams gave Ren two themes. But wait, Jeff, there's a third theme. It's less obvious and it's a very low, rumbling motif, often played by the basses, but it's a very memorable, sinister motif once you first notice it. Darth Vader technically only got one theme, though it can be argued that Anakin's theme is a secondary theme for him. So John Williams was feeling generous for Kylo Ren, it seems. But Ren's themes don't get much development in The Force Awakens, but I would imagine they're going to get more prominence in the next two movies. Yes, they do, but that's for the later episodes. Yeah, we'll, we'll save that. So the hero of the sequel trilogy is actually a heroine. For the first time in the Star Wars movies, it's a woman who saves the day and is the main character. It's amazing that George Lucas didn't create more female characters in Star Wars. We have Leia and Padme, of course, and besides Aunt Beru and Anakin's mother, there weren't a lot of prominent female characters in the first six films. 
That changes with Rey, a scavenger on Jakku who we meet while she is rummaging through the wreckage of a downed Star Destroyer in the desert. Before we discuss the theme that John Williams wrote for her, I would like to bring to attention how ingeniously J.J. Abrams presents her character. Rey stays on screen for about four minutes before she speaks. Despite the lack of any words or descriptions, we get a complete picture of her existence, her daily routine, what she does, where she lives, and what she dreams about. It's a purely visual introduction, with John Williams telling us a little bit through music and a wondrous example of what is usually referred to as the show-don't-tell method. Instead of burdening the audience with clumsy and forced expositions, J.J. Abrams instead gives us a first-hand experience of what we need to know. I really like this style of filmmaking. During interviews, John Williams never misses an opportunity to discuss Ray's theme at length and the process behind writing it. Ray seems to be his favorite character in the whole sequel trilogy, and you can definitely feel in the music that John Williams was full of inspiration and ideas. Well, I'll take that a step further and say that Ray, I think, was one of John Williams' favorite characters ever. And being a strong female in an action movie probably had something to do with it, something we don't see much, especially at that point besides Ripley in the Alien films. The feminine qualities blended with her strength make for great musical possibilities, and we hear those after Rey leaves the Star Destroyer to sell the parts she has found. It's very feminine with the woodwinds, and full of implied heroism in the strings as she rides her cruiser. But there's some unused music first during her foray through the Star Destroyer that plays up until the moment Ray removes her goggles and our expectations are shut down when we see that it's a woman. And then Ray's theme begins as she slides down a hill to her cruiser.
The theme consists of several motifs and bridge sections, and is one of the most complex themes that John Williams has written for any Star Wars film. There are three main elements that form the theme. The chime motif, which is often played by a dreamy Celeste, or it can also be played by the brass section, resulting in a courageous, somewhat heroic statement. Then there's the lively galloping motif, which is often juggled around by the different sections of the orchestra. And finally, there's the broad, force-like theme that connects it all, played by the horns and strings. The chime motif of the, on the Celeste gives it a really innocent, childlike quality, and some people have been comparing it to Hedwig's theme from Harry Potter. However, I think that a closer comparison, at least harmonically, would be to that of the Double Trouble theme from Prisoner of Azkaban. Next follows the fast-paced, rhythmic and playful galloping motif, which infuses Ray's character with motion and agility. The broad main theme has been compared to Bugbeak's flight from Prisoner of Azkaban, because of its similarly soaring melodic line. However, nothing in Ray's theme has been directly lifted from Harry Potter. It's rather the style and orchestration that, of the music that makes it feel similar. After selling the parts, Ray returns home for a meal. A dreamy horn solo, which is followed by a slow, almost melancholic flute statement of Ray's theme, really gets across the childlike wonder and a yearning for the distant past. I think that when Ray puts on the old Rebel Alliance helmet, we see J.J. Abrams and John Williams at the most nostalgic. Doesn't the scene perfectly capture the dreams of every Star Wars fan, the way we too imagine ourselves being part of the stories which happened a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away? It's exactly at this moment that the film bridges the gap between Rey and the audience, and this completes the character introduction, as well as our immersion.
Oh yes, that has always been one of my favorite moments of the film. She looks so innocent there, like a six-year-old getting to play with real Star Wars toys. There are a few moments when the themes for Kylo Ren and Rey melt together. One comes when Ren is trying to extract information from Rey's mind that will lead the First Order to Luke Skywalker's hideout. But the more prevalent one happens in their big lightsaber battle at the end of the movie. The fight between Kylo and Rey begins with an interesting quote of Burning Homestead and the DS Irae motif from the original Star Wars. It is not only the same cue but also the same recording, taken right from the original soundtrack. John Williams had originally written different music for that scene, but J.J. Abrams decided to replace it with a tracked cue. We can only speculate why. I think that Burning Homestead symbolized a turning point in Luke Skywalker's timeline, when he realized that there is no longer a home waiting for him, and that the only choice he has is to let go of his past and to move forward with the rebellion against the Empire. Rey's situation seems similar. By activating her lightsaber, that she previously felt frightened and repulsed by. She now accepts that her path lies not behind her on Jakku, but ahead, fighting together with the Resistance against the First Order. We hear Kylo Ren's theme being stated less and less, and Rey's theme becoming more and more prominent as she gradually takes the upper hand in the fight. Adding the Force theme into the mix as well, we get some really nice thematic action scoring that can tell you what's happening in the story even if you close your eyes and cannot see the screen.
Yeah, I I bet this is going to happen a lot more as the trilogy continues, as the story turns more and more to Rey trying to turn Ren from the dark side. So I want to go back to Poe Dameron, who was the first main character we met in the first scene. I tried very hard to find it, but I'm not sure he has a true theme written for him. There is a theme for the Resistance, which we'll play later, but I don't think he has any thematic material written for him. Kind of going along with the fact that Han Solo never got a theme, but the Rebel fanfare was always associated with him. I kind of disagree, Jeff. I think that Poe does get a theme. I would attribute that theme to Poe and the small victories that he achieves through his unparalleled piloting skill. Just as the race team, it rapidly soars from the lowest register to the highest, which creates a sense of heroic achievement. Here's the first performance of it, as Poe flies a TIE fighter in his escape with Finn. My favorite statement of this theme occurs later in the film, when Poe once again saves the day by proving that he's really a flying ace, single-handedly shooting down 10 TIE fighters in one long take. Okay, so I do remember the music from that scene and thought it might be associated with Poe, but because I couldn't recognize it from the first performance earlier in the movie, I just thought it was a nice melody, nothing more. So that's a great observation, Polyus. Thanks for that. So let's talk about that theme for The Resistance. And when I watched The Force Awakens in the theater on opening night, the theater erupted in cheers when the music started as the X-Wing fighters came in to save everyone after the First Order looked like they had won. I don't think anyone was cheering about the sight of the X-Wings because that shot of the wings skimming the water surface was in almost every trailer, so everyone knew it was coming. I really think people were reacting to the music that plays as the team picks off the stormtroopers and shoots down the TIE fighters. And this ranks as my favorite Star Wars theme since Duel of the Fates. If you listen to my episode covering the movie Munich, you'll know that this music draws inspiration from the theme Williams wrote for NBC's Sunday Night Football coverage. That music is so much fun. I'm so happy Williams wrote a concert version of the theme, too. I was at the Hollywood Bowl concert in 2016 when he conducted that, 
and it has a stronger punch than the Rebel Fanfare, though it's not used as much in the sequel trilogy as the Rebel Fanfare was in the original trilogy. The March of the Resistance is never developed its full extent in the film, and it is only in the end credits, as well as the soundtrack album, where it really shines, especially due to its fugal section. When I got back home from the premiere, I was listening to this march on repeat at full volume. I can never get enough of John Williams writing in contrapuntal and polyphonic style. Huh, well, since you brought that up, you have to give us a brief explanation of contrapuntal and polyphonic styles. Polyphony means that there are several independent melodies playing at the same time, as opposed to one melody and its harmonic accompaniment. Counterpoint is what we refer to when we talk about polyphonic techniques within the Western classical music tradition, especially those that are associated with the Baroque period, and composers like Johann Sebastian Bach. The best musical form to explore counterpoint is the fugue. Bach was known for these, but John Williams has also composed fugues for his own scores. If you recall the shark cage fugue from Jaws, there are a lot of playful melodies interacting with each other there. the same fugal style in the middle section of March of the Resistance. Thanks for that explanation, it really does help. I have always enjoyed Williams using these techniques, but I, I never knew how to describe them, so now I do. So we don't want to forget about the music for the leader of the First Order, Supreme Leader Snoke. He's only seen in holograms in this movie, but he'll have a physical presence and a much bigger role to play in The Last Jedi. The music mimics the theme for the Emperor in that Williams uses low male voices, but this time, there seem to be words written for them to sing. An article in Variety magazine mentions that Williams dipped back into the Sanskrit language he used for Duel of the Fates for Snoke's theme while also using a variation of the music he wrote in Revenge of the Sith while Palpatine talks about Darth Plagueis. What I have read indicates that the words being sung come from a Rudyard Kipling poem and translated into Sanskrit. The name of the poem has never been made public, but the words don't come out as clear as what Williams wrote for Duel of the Fates.
This is also played in a future scene, and the vocals are mixed so low in the sound of the scene that for the first two or three times I watched the movie, I didn't know there was a chorus harmonizing in those scenes until I heard the track called Snoke on the score release. Those voices are extremely low, like Buddhist throat singers. All right, so moving on from that, we have to talk about the death of Han Solo. I don't know why, when I watched this the first time, that I did not expect this to happen. I mean, it was pretty much foretold many years before that. I remember Harrison Ford talking about wanting to kill off Han Solo in The Empire Strikes Back instead of being frozen in carbonite to return in the next movie. And then he lobbied for him to be the one who blows up the second Death Star with he and the Millennium Falcon not making it out alive at the end of Return of the Jedi. So it was probably a big incentive for Harrison Ford to return if Han Solo died before the end credits. I really like the lighting choices in Han Solo's death scene. Initially, when Han talks with uh, his son, Kylo's face is lit in an ambiguous way. And you can see both the dark side, symbolized by the red light, and the light side, symbolized by the blue light on his face. But as the scene progresses, the last remaining rays of sunlight disappear, and Kylo's face becomes entirely red, showing that his inner conflict has been resolved, and not in favor of Han Solo. Earlier in the film, Williams introduced a Requiem-style piece to mourn the deaths of those killed by the First Order, when Starkiller Base unleashed its deadly rays to end the Republic and the fleet. He returns to it as Han Solo falls to his death, but not before giving us a terrifying and dramatic musical motif that emphasizes the unexpected and tragic betrayal of Han. It's played by the strings, with an increasingly furious timpani accompaniment, and it's very similar to the motif heard at the end of Anakin's Dark Deeds from Revenge of the Sith. I really like how this evil act is presented musically. It attains an almost cathartic quality. Every time I watch that scene, I feel like those frantic strings are playing the spectator's response to that moment. The music would have been very different if it was telling it from Kylo Ren's perspective. Alright, so moving on, I know that I'm going to get a lot of angry emails for what I'm about to say, but I didn't find the music written for Ray's journey to Luke very exciting at the end of the film. I mean, visually, it's great. It's filmed in Ireland, and it looks gorgeous. And we finally see Mark Hamill after waiting more than two hours. But musically, it didn't hold up to the level of any of the finales from the original trilogy or even the prequel trilogy. 
I really like the performance of Ray's theme as they arrive at the planet. But once she walks up those steps, I guess they're called the Jedi steps, the music doesn't really grab me emotionally. It was a good decision to use the Force theme to close it out, and not the main Star Wars theme. One of those angry emails will certainly come from me, Jeff, <laughs> because I love that theme. I really like the slight, mysterious theme for the Jedi Steps, which feels sort of similar to the music in Jaws when Hooper and Brody are looking for Ben Gartner's boat. to say that I love how John Williams arranged the new themes for the credits. It's not easy to hear them all during the film, but being able to experience them for more than 10 minutes without the distractions of the sound effects, dialogue or visuals is really amazing. This is why I never leave the theater before the end credits are finished, especially when the music is composed by John Williams. My favorite moment of the end credits happens at the very, very end, when the Force team and Race team fuse together into one. You really can't beat that beauty. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, I think that would have been great to do instead of maybe burning Homestead when she turns on that lightsaber to fuse the Force theme and Ray's theme. That would have made it more impactful instead of you're thinking, why is he using this music? So anyway, that final shot of Ray handing the lightsaber to Luke was a great cliffhanger for the next film, which would not be released until 2017. Pre-production was already starting on this film, called The Last Jedi, and John Williams was already linked to it as a composer. The music for The Force Awakens was a surprise hit among critics, and peer groups nominated the score for a few major awards for the year 2015. Because the film was not screened until late December, the Hollywood Foreign Press Association didn't see the film in time to give it and the score any Golden Globe nominations. But the score was nominated by the British Film Academy, and in a bit of a surprise, it got a nomination for an Academy Award. I say it was a surprise because the Academy didn't give any love to the music Williams wrote for the prequels, so I figured they were going to write off the music for the sequels as well. And apparently the music fit the ever-changing rules about using pre-existing music for sequels. The Oscar nomination for The Force Awakens was not only a return of Star Wars music to the Oscars, but it gave John Williams his 50th nomination. The producers of the telecast even spent a little bit of time recognizing Williams as the Star Wars droids came on stage, noticed Williams in the audience, and announced the momentous nomination. Some of the audience members even applauded. So John Williams didn't win at the British Academy Awards or the U.S. Academy Awards, but history was made by the winner. Ennio Morricone won his first competitive Oscar for scoring Quentin Tarantino's The Hateful Eight and became the oldest Oscar winner ever at 87 years old, at least until screenwriter James Ivory took that moniker at 89 years old two years later. And here's something interesting. If John Williams had won that Oscar instead of Ennio Morricone, he would have been the oldest Oscar winner at 84 years old. It's one of those rare times where I wasn't disappointed that John Williams didn't get the Academy Award for Best Score. As much as I enjoyed the music for The Force Awakens, I feel that Ennio Morricone had been robbed of the Oscars far more times than John Williams. Even though the score for The Hateful Eight isn't really his most memorable work, I think it was justified, from a human perspective, to give Morricone the award for, that so many scores of his didn't get, even though they more than deserved it. And don't forget the Academy tried to make up for that with an honorary Oscar for Morricone in 2007. But yes, Morricone was, up to that point, shamefully unrecognized at the Oscars. So while John Williams was applauding Ennio Morricone at the Oscars, The Force Awakens was on its way to becoming the biggest movie of 2015, and only the third film to make $2 billion in ticket sales worldwide. That certainly tells you how anticipated the movie was back then. And while the movie was assuring the folks at Disney that buying the rights to Star Wars was indeed a great idea... John Williams was back to work with Steven Spielberg for an adaptation of a children's story about a British girl who becomes friends with the giant. It's called The BFG, and I will be joined by a new co-host for that episode, Paul Wright. I hope you'll be there for it. And Paulius is going to be back with us on the baton after that to continue our discussion of the Star Wars sequel trilogy scores. So I'm looking forward to working with you on The Last Jedi. Thanks, Paulius, for talking about The Force Awakens for us today. Likewise, thank you, Jeff. The Star Wars sequel scores are some of my favorites when we're talking about John Williams' recent work. 
So I can't wait to return for The Last Jedi and dig deeper into the treasure trove of music that he composed for the fans. I'll see you then. So everyone listening out there, whether you're listening to this episode in 2020, just as it's released, or listening to it a few years later, I would love to hear from you. You can always send an email to me at jeffswim at aol.com and let me know your thoughts about this or any other episode on The Baton. Until our next episode, The Baton is down. (laughs) 